Happy Father's Day to each of you. I hope you're enjoying a good day. How many of you have already called or texted your dad today and just said, Happy Father's Day? Can I see your hands? Good job. All right, so the rest of you have a little work to do this afternoon. Uh, This is an incredible day when we set aside one Sunday a year. It's always the third Sunday in June. And we celebrate the fact that God has given to us an earthly influence, not perfect. Some of you, in fact, may have had unsaved dads growing up, but a dad who uh, knows the Lord and raises his family to know and serve the Lord is a great treasure to any family. And I was fortunate, and Beth was fortunate, to grow up in a family where our dads knew the Lord. And they raised us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, even as Paul talks about. You know, as I uh, thought about Father's Day, I went back to the 2019 census. It's the last census that we've had in our country. Uh, They just finished another one, and the results of that are still being calibrated, and, and I'm sure we'll hear all kinds of data in the years ahead. But in 2019... The, the, the U.S. Census discovered that 62% of all men in the United States are dads. They're fathers. That's 72.2 million fathers in this country. That is a lot of dads. And so I thought about the day that we celebrate their, um, their observance, and I wanted to find out a little bit about Father's Day. I don't know if you've done any research or any anything about Father's Day at all, but Father's Day actually started in the heart of a mother named Sonora Dodd. It actually started in 1907 in Spokane, Washington, and it came out as a result of a sermon. Sonora was sitting in church listening to her pastor preach on Mother's Day, and she thought about her dad. Because her dad had raised six kids by himself. His wife had passed away in an untimely way, unexpectedly. And so he never remarried, and, and he raised six kids on the family farm. And as Sonora was listening to her pastor preach on Mother's Day, she thought, you know, there ought to be a way to honor dads like my dad. So in 1907 she began lobbying her mayor. She went to the mayor. I mean, she was serious about this. She went to the mayor of Spokane, and she began lobbying that he would set aside a city, a day where their city could observe Father's Day or observe or honor fathers. And so since her dad's birthday was on the 5th of June, in 1910, she prevailed. And for the first time on June 5th, 1910, in the city of Spokane, Washington, fathers were honored. Now, that day, that celebration didn't take off the way Mother's Day took off. You know, it's, we, we love our moms, and we honor our moms, and we're thankful for our moms. Dads always play sort of second fiddle to that. And so it took a long while before Father's Day gained any traction. In fact, it wasn't until 1966, how many of you were alive in 1966? Just kind of sneak your hand up really quietly here. You're in the minority here, but you're the pillars of the church. This is where all the wisdom resides. In 1966, you'll remember uh, President Lyndon Johnson, he made a presidential proclamation setting aside the third Sunday in June as the day when, when the nation would observe uh, uh, their fathers and commemorate their fathers. And in 1972, Richard Nixon actually signed a presidential uh, edict and, and put that into law, making Father's Day a national holiday. So that's just a brief history of why we take the third Sunday of June to celebrate our dads. It all started with a mom. And it always goes back to that, doesn't it? There are 72 million dads who ought to be thankful that, uh, that uh, Sonora Dodd did that, and we're thankful to the Lord that he gave us dads and that he is our Heavenly Father. Being a dad is a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal in any way that you think about it. It's a huge deal uh, if you have a large family. It's a huge deal if you have a small family. Being a dad is a huge deal. But when you come to the book of Ephesians chapter 6, uh, 
the Apostle Paul actually takes that big deal and elevates it to a cosmic level. And so by the time we get done listening in to what the Apostle Paul actually has to say to the dads at Ephesus, we're going to discover three things. And and here they are. Number one, we are going to discover that the task that Paul is laying out for every Christian dad is so much bigger than we could ever have imagined. It is immensely bigger. It is, it is actually much bigger than where it starts. It starts in our own home with our own children, but it actually has cosmic impact. It, it, it is exponentially greater than anything we could potentially think of when we first start thinking about what it means to be a Christian dad. And so Paul is going to give us insight into this task, and we're going to find out that it is immensely bigger than anything we could have thought. And the second thing we're going to find is this, that parenting, particularly for dads, must be gospel-shaped. We're going to need gospel-shaped skills to accomplish the big mission that God is giving and the assignment that God has given to every Christian dad here this morning. So it's immensely big as a responsibility. We're going to need gospel-shaped skills to do it. And, and thirdly, the kind of parenting that Paul has in mind for all of us who are Christian dads is beyond our capacity and it's beyond our ability. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not. And I'm sure as you sit there as a Christian dad this morning, you know that you're not. we're not wise enough and we are not skilled enough to do what Paul has in mind. And so we're going to need wisdom from above and enlightenment into that wisdom, and we're going to need God to enable us. We're going to need capacity that comes from God's Spirit. Because the task before us isn't just making sure that our sons and daughters grow up and have food to eat and clothing to wear and a place to sleep. It's way more than just making sure they have an education. It's way more than just doing our part in helping to prepare them to be functional adults and profitable uh, employees uh, to an employer. It's way more than that. By the time we're done, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is charging Christian dads to raise up the next generation of men and women who are going to know God truly who are going to love God intimately, follow God fully, and serve God joyfully and in ways that please Him. That is the task of a Christian dad. So dads, if this morning you think, boy, my responsibility is to make sure that the sons and daughters who live in my house get through their growing up years without messing up, or they get through school, or I want to provide them with a good education, I want to make sure they get to college, I want to find a good job, I'm going to do everything I can to try to help them learn how to make good decisions, and, and, and maybe I'm going to uh, pray before the Lord that, that the Lord in His providence would give to them a mate. You have set your sights too low. Paul is actually elevating the responsibility of a Christian dad much higher than that. And so it shouldn't surprise us as we come to the text in Ephesians chapter 6 that Paul is putting that text, I mean, it's one of the shortest instructions that Paul gives in this section to Christian dads in one verse. It's in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. There is a parallel verse. You may want to write it down next to this one. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become disheartened or discouraged. And so as you frame up these texts, these two texts that Paul drops right into the middle of his instruction to believers at Ephesus about how they should walk in light of the fact that they have received the gospel and they have been made a part of God's household, 
What is the big plan that he is laying out? And so as we come to this text, the first thing that Paul wants you to see is that there really is a master plan. And that master plan is laid out in two words that show up in the book. The first of those words is not in our text. Actually, the first time you see it is in chapter 2. So go back to chapter 2. And let's look at a verse in chapter 2 that is going to lay out the first term that Paul wants you to think about as you think about what it means to be a Christian dad. Look at verse 18. Paul says this, For through Him, that's Christ, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So every member of the Trinity is mentioned in that verse. Through Christ, we have access to God the Father by one Spirit. So then, Paul says, in light of that, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. And there's our first word. It's the word household. There is a household that Paul is talking about. Now, when you look at that word household, don't think about dwelling place. Don't think about a building. Don't even think about people in, uh, like, like parents and children. Don't, don't just primarily think in terms of a dwelling place and the individuals that dwell in it. Think of a complicated set of relationships that existed in the ancient world upon which all of the ancient world rested. So if you lived in Ephesus, you were part of what ancient empire? Do you remember the ancient empire that, that existed at the time of Paul? What was that empire? The Roman Empire. And the security and the success of the Roman Empire depended on the smaller units that made up that empire or that made up that state. And those units were called households. And there was a complex set of relationships that existed in every household. For example, there was the relationship between a father, or a husband rather, and his wife. And that relationship was very key to the successful administration of that household. Then there was the relationship that the father had with the children who were in that house. And that relationship and those children were very, very key to the future success and social standing and economic well-being of that household. And then in addition to those two sets of relationships, there was a much broader set of relationships depending on the size of the household between the head of the household, the master, and all of the servants that oversaw all of the affairs and the business dealings of that house. And some of these households in ancient Rome were absolutely huge. They were extraordinarily powerful. In fact, if you go back in Roman history, you will find that these households literally became the households where power and wealth were centered. And the head of the household, at the top of this sort of food chain, was one individual who had absolute power, absolute control, and total dominance over everything and everyone in that household. And he had a title. And his title was pater. We get our English word father from this. And so in ancient Rome, which is where this letter was written in, in the empire, this model that you have is, is going to, to be seen as being run by a father. And that's really our second term. Our second term, father, referred to the person who was in charge of this household and, and his authority was absolute, his will was uncontested, his decisions were unchallenged, and he had one goal. And the goal was to administrate this complicated set of relationships, this household, in a way that would advance his name. Because his name was attached to that household. 
and the fortunes of the household would eventually impact his own personal fortune. And so as you go to ancient Rome, you'll read about the house, for example, the house of of Fabius, or you'll read about the house of, of Gaius, or the house of Caesar. These were large households with a great deal of political power and wealth, and they dominated the landscape in the ancient world. Aristotle talked about the fact that the state, the security of the state, the security of the empire, rested on the well-being of these households, and the household's well-being rested on the leadership of the pater familias, the head of the family, the father of the family. He was not concerned about the emotional well-being of the people in his house. When he thought about his children, he was not worried about in terms of what they felt or what they wanted or their wishes or desires. His primary objective was to figure out how to advantage the household by positioning those children in ways that would result in the economic well-being of that household. He ruled with absolute power, unquestioned authority, and unchallenged decisions. His power was so absolute over that household that it included the life or the death of any member of that household, with the exception of his wife. Roman law had a provision for women in a household like that. Now that's the backdrop to the commandment that Paul gives when he says to Ephesian fathers who are over their own houses, their own households, you'll see beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, and going all the way through, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse uh, 22, and going all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, that, that Paul is going to address the head of the house, and he's going to do it just like he would be talking to the head of a Roman house. You have responsibility to your wife, You have responsibility to your children, and you have a responsibility to all the servants that make up your house. So Paul is addressing a household. So the the information we have is in that context. Now, if you were the head of a household like this, where would you go for a model? Where would you go to find out how to do this? With so much at stake... With your own name attached to this, how would you go about being the head of a family and doing it successfully? And so if you lived in ancient Rome, you would look for a household that was more successful, more economically strong, and with greater political clout than your own. You would look for a greater house. In fact, the Scriptures talk about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. We have the reference to this. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? In a great house, there are different kinds of vessels. In a wealthy house, in an established house, in a house of high social standing, there are vessels of gold and silver and wood and stone. So there was the existence and the recognition of great houses. And in the Roman Empire... There was no greater household than Caesar's. In fact, Paul mentions this in the little book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, when he sends greetings from those in Caesar's household. So are you getting the picture? In the Roman Empire, there were households, and at the top of the, all the households, the most powerful household in the nation, in the state, was Caesar's house. Now, what was Caesar's house like? How did Caesar administrate his own household? And all you have to do is go back to the Roman Empire in the first century during the time of Paul to realize that that these households were filled with political intrigue and social manipulation and relational conflict and betrayal and seduction and sensuality of every kind displayed often in open immorality and in open impurity. Paul talked about it this way 
in Romans chapter 1 when he describes Roman society in this way. In Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If you wanted to see what a Roman household looked like, you went to Caesar's house. And when you got there, this is what you saw. And at the head of all of this was a man who used all of his power and all of his authority and all of his position to make sure that all of that advantaged his household. The intrigue, the politics, the manipulation, the seduction of somebody else's family, the marriage of one household to another, the business interests that you would send to your son. You didn't care what your son wanted to do. You figured out what you needed in your household, and then you got your son in an arrangement so that that came to your household. Now that was the model in ancient Rome. If you were the head of the household, that is how you ran your house on a smaller level. And Paul says, as great as Caesar's house is, there is an even greater household. And this household is very different in every way than that household. When you look to that household and you see all of the intrigue and all of the politic and all of the power and all of the maneuvering and all of the immorality and all of the cruelty and all of the harshness, you come to another household and this household is so far above Caesar's household, it exists at a cosmic level. It is God's household. God the Father established it. He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the head of it, and He is bringing people in this realm into that household. And as a believer, you belong maybe to a household in Ephesus, but you also belong to a much greater household, even than the house of Caesar. You belong to the household of God. Now, you didn't start there. You didn't earn your right in. How did you get into that household? And Paul says in chapter 1, you were adopted into that household. You could come into a household in ancient Rome by birth. You could come into a household in ancient Rome by marriage. Or you could come in to a household in ancient Rome by something called adoption. Now, you know, when you and I think about adoption, we think about a small infant, maybe less than a year old, or maybe two-year-olds, or, or, or even maybe somewhat older, eight, nine, without a parent. Maybe we go to a, an orphanage, or, and we'll find that child, and, and we'll bring them into our home, and we'll adopt them. But it's almost impossible for us to imagine adopting a 30-year-old man. I mean, if, if I came to you and said, hey, pray for Beth and I, we are in the process of adopting, you're going to have a lot of questions. You're going to want to know, well, okay, so what motivated that at your stage in life? Um, well, it was, it was either that or dogs, so we're going with adoption at this stage in life. And then you're going to want to know, so where are you going to go get this wonderful addition to your family? And, and, uh, and then you're going to want to know, how old is this new person? And if I said to you, 30 years of age, I guarantee there would be a ton of conversation. I mean, you might look at me and go, oh, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> and you would go off, and there would be a very different conversation in your car on the way home. Can you, what? I mean, just think about that conversation. Pastor Sam is adopting a 30-year-old, what, what in the world? Because we don't think of adoption the way the Romans thought about adoption. A Roman father would often adopt somebody either because he didn't have a, an heir or he wanted that person in the family household. 
And when that person came in to the family through that adoption process, he would get a new name and he would get all the rights and the privileges that would come with being a part of the household of this father. That's the image. You have been adopted into a household and you didn't come in as a stranger. You started as a stranger, but you came in with full rights as a son or daughter. That household operates along very different lines. It is greater in every way. This household was called into existence by God. He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, and you can see this at the end of chapter 1, He appointed Him to be the head, the leader over that household, and He is naming you and naming me, and He is naming believers from all over the world to be part of that household. That's what He talks about in Ephesians chapter 3 when God is described as naming families throughout the world. He is bringing us into this household. This household is guided by a very different kind of wisdom. It is governed in a very different kind of way. It is governed with justice. It is characterized with righteousness. It is marked by peace. It operates in love and mercy abounds. Each member is uniquely valued and lavished by God the Father in love. Gifted by God the Son and secured and protected by God the Spirit. I mean, if you've been listening to Paul in the book of Ephesians, every one of those statements I just made is at the heart of what Paul is talking about. So, when Paul says, fathers, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, that's what he has in mind. There are great households, and there are smaller households, and at, at, at the head of every one of those households is an individual called a father. And in Rome, the greatest of those households was Caesar's. But there is an even greater household. It is God's, and you have been brought into that household. God is your father. Jesus Christ has been appointed to lead that household. And the Spirit of God is, is enabling you, illuminating you, indwelling you, securing you, and protecting you. So this household is very different than all of those households. Now here's the point. Some of the people in this household that exists in this realm that Paul describes as a spiritual realm, some of those people are also heading up smaller houses in the city of Ephesus or in the city of Greenville, South Carolina or wherever you happen to be. There are some people in that household who are themselves the heads of smaller households. And Paul has something to say to those people. He says to them, you are to bring up your children. Here is your mission. You are to bring up your children to know, love, and serve a different house. They are in your house. Your household is in Ephesus, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, or it's in Greenville, South Carolina. And as the head of that house, you have a mission. And it's very different than all of the missions that the other houses have, than the mission of all the other houses. All the other heads of households, the fathers of families, are trying to advance their own household. They're trying to secure its standing, its economic well-being, and they don't care how it works inside. The servants, the children, everybody in that household is an instrument, a tool to be used to advance the house and to advance the name of the family father. And Paul says, now some of you are in this household and your mission in that little household is very, very different. You are to bring up those in your households so that they know God, they love God, they, they follow God, they serve God, and they worship God. You are to bring up your children 
just like God has been bringing you up. And the text that probably speaks to this most clearly is in chapter 4, verse 20. Listen to how Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit parents us in Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. But this is not the way you learned, you were trained, you were raised up. This is not the way you learn Christ. So in God's house that is being led by Christ, every member of that household is being brought up so that they will know Christ, who is the head. But you did not so learn Christ, verse 20. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. So what were you taught? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. So, so let's make sure we understand what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there is a great house, it is God's house, and you have been adopted into that house. The head of that house is Jesus. But there is someone in that house who is teaching you. And the person that is teaching you is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is teaching you, instructing you, training you, so that you will be like Christ. Which means you have to learn how to put off the old man and put on the new. You're going to have to learn how to put off a whole set of behaviors that used to mark your life and used to mark your house and put on a whole new set of behaviors that are very different, that are marked by righteousness and peace and holiness. And Paul says to earthly dads who are a part of this house, now what I just said to you in chapter 4, verse 20 you bring to your own little house, and as a dad, as the head of that, of that household, with your wife, with your children, with your servants, you do that. You raise up people in your household so that they know Christ. That is your mission. Your mission isn't to advance your house anymore. Your mission isn't to establish your name. Your mission isn't to secure the economic stability of your house. You have a very different mission. So here you are in the city of Ephesus and you meet other heads of other houses and you start listening in to what they're doing and the business deals and how they have this son married off to this this girl from another house and how their wife has found out some information about this other house and came back with that gossip and how they seized on it and they were able to make some business deal and how they bought and sold servants and what they did. And so all of a sudden, all of this discussion is going on. And did you hear about the house of Sevilius or did you hear about Maximus's house and what happened there? All of these conversations are going on. And here is a Christian dad, a Christian head of a family in Ephesus, and he can't have a part in any of that. Because he has a very different mission. He's not trying to build his little house. He no longer sees his power and his authority and his position as as serving himself. He has to take all of that and he has to invest that in his wife, in his children, in his servants. And the mission is very different now than it used to be. The mission is that his wife and his children and His servants come to know the Lord, come to follow the Lord, come to worship the Lord, come to love the Lord, and come to serve the Lord in ways that please the Lord. In other words, the mission of this little house became the mission of that big house. Remember what I said at the very beginning? By the time we listen into Paul and we really listen to what he has to say, we're going to find out that the task is so much bigger than we ever imagined when we opened our Bible to Ephesians chapter 6 and we read this passage we've been reading our whole life. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up 
in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's what's at stake. That's why as we celebrate fathers, Paul wants us to think about what it means to be a Christian father. And that brings us really to the fourth thing. So if that's really my mission, and I'm seeing it for the first time, I am absolutely stunned. I I am stunned and I am scared out of my mind. How in the world am am I supposed to do this as a Christian dad? Beth and I have been married for 35 years. We have two children. I have a 25-year-old son, Robert, who most of you haven't met yet, and you've met my daughter, Ashton, who's on a mission trip this week. And in our little household, my responsibility as a Christian dad is far more than just to make sure they have clothes to wear, food to eat, a place to sleep, education, uh, the potential of a good job, and bring them to church when they're supposed to be here. Oh, and don't make them mad in the process. Because Paul said, don't, don't make him mad, right? Don't, don't do that. I mean, if that little mission is hard, I mean, just think about that tiny little mission. Like, making sure they survive. My son, when he was a kid, had a fascination with electrical outlets. Those little holes in the electrical outlets, I, I mean... He was bound and determined to stick things in those holes. And no amount of pain that we could cause him removed that fascination. And it was like, son, I want you to live. And one day he found out why you don't stick things in electrical sockets. And, and I think it kind of cured that. I mean, there are all kinds of things like this. I mean, just think about what it takes to take that little beautiful six-month-old pagan, right? Because they're born pagans. You know, when you got married and, and you married a believer and you're a believer and you had a little tiny one, you didn't have a little tiny believer. You had a Philistine. All right? That's what you got. And, and it's hard enough just to, you know, just to, to feed them. You know, girls are a little easier than guys. When it comes to food, it's like, are you kidding, son? Again? This is like the sixth meal today. Uh, you know, when it comes to clothing, girls are a lot more expensive than guys. Unless you have a basketball player. Because everybody knows that your skill exponentially goes up when you have a new pair of shoes. Right? Everybody knows that. And so that's why dads who are hoping their kid is going to have an NBA career, are willing to spend hundreds of dollars on useless rubber. And then one day you wake up and you realize, you know, I spent thousands of dollars on basketball shoes, and my kid is never going to have a college career in basketball. It has a lot to do with height and skill, and no shoe is going to change that. I'm just giving you the realities of of Christian dadhood. It's like, how do I um, not make them mad? Because they make me mad. I mean, you know, dads don't, I mean, Christian dads don't really talk that way. But we think that. It's like, what were you thinking? Are you kidding me? You said that to your mom? I don't even say that to your mom. What? You did what? This is the 49th time, and I've been counting. This is the 49th time this has happened this week. And, and so you begin to realize this is an immensely difficult task. Just on the earthly level, I mean, just to get them clothed and fed and educated and, and, and all the things that go into just raising an infant to maturity. And then Paul exponentially raises the bar when he says, that's really not your mission. Your mission is far bigger. Your mission is to raise those children so that they know God intimately, personally, truly. They love God. They follow and embrace God. They worship and serve God. And all of a sudden you realize 
That's not just hard. That's what? That's impossible. There's no way. How do I do that? And so that's what Paul does next. He gives them the manner in which they are supposed to accomplish this stunning task. And he does it this way. Negatively, he says, don't use your authority or your power or your position to do that. You aren't going to strong arm your children into this mission. Do not provoke your children to anger. And the idea here is this something that happens over time. There's a way that you parent. There's a way that you lead. There's a way that you speak. There's a way that you relate. And, and it has to do with how you use your power and how you use your position as a Christian dad. And Paul says, you can do this like the pagans do. And when you do it like the pagans do, don't be surprised when your children turn away from the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't bring sinful anger, this internal resentment. That's not just talking about losing their temper. It's talking about the fact that as they sit under you and as they are raised by you in the context in which you're raising them, they grow inner, they, they grow angry in their inner man. There is this inner resentment that grows in them because of how you have used your words or how you've used your power or your position or your authority. And by the time you're done raising them up, they want nothing to do with your God. They want nothing to do with your household. And more than that, they want nothing to do with that household. And the whole mission, if you remember, is you are raising up the people in your household, your wife, your children, your servants, as an Ephesian dad, this is your mission. You are to bring all of those relationships to the place where they are thriving in that household. And you can parent, Paul says, in a way that gets all the earthly stuff done. You can parent in a way that gets all the clothes on their backs, that puts food in their bellies, that puts a roof over their head, that makes them look successful in the city of Ephesus, but you can do all of that and fail to do the mission that God gave you as a Christian dad, which was to raise up your children so they will love that household. And they will serve that household. And they will advance the mission of that household. That's why Paul says, negatively, when you parent, do not use your parenting in ways, don't exercise your parenting in ways that provoke your children to wrath. Colossians is going to say, don't do it in a way that disheartens them, that deflates them, that destroys their desire to serve God or to know God. How many times has a young man maybe gone off to camp somewhere and come back and said to his dad, you know what it happened to me at camp? I heard a message and God worked in my heart and I think I want to be a missionary or I think I want to be a preacher, and that dad will say, you know, son, that's good, but how are you going to make a living? I, you know, nobody in our family's ever been a preacher. You're not really preacher material. You are supposed to be an accountant. You're supposed to be a lawyer. That's my plan for you. That's what we've always talked about. You're supposed to take over the family business. Your, your granddad started this firm. I'm running this firm, and 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 that's the plan. So, you know what? I'm glad you went to camp, and I'm glad you love Jesus, and I'm glad you read your Bible, and you're awesome, and it's all great, but this is the plan. And you just disheartened. You just discouraged. Because you were so focused on getting your Christian son or your Christian daughter to, to do something for your household that you forgot the mission that God gave you to raise them for that household. And so Paul says, don't use your authority, your power, and your position in ways that provoke your children to anger. So what am I supposed to do then? Bring them up. That's the idea of training them. Bring them up in the training, in the nurture, in the instruction of the Lord. This is sort of like the full orb thing. This is not just sort of a one-dimensional training. This, this affects every area of their life. It affects the way they think. It affects what they believe. 
It affects their character, their skills, their, their, so, their, their, their social ability. Everything about that child, you as a Christian dad have a responsibility to oversee the instruction, the formation of that child. So that by the time you're done with that process, they are passionate about the things that God is passionate about. They are equipped to do the things that God wants them to do. They have embraced a world vision that is very different than the world around them. They have embraced a worldview that is biblical. It is the worldview of that house. And you are to use everything in your power, everything at your disposal to accomplish that instruction over time. It's not something you do in, in a month. It's not something that you do once and done. This is the ongoing development of every area of a child so that that child is living for the exaltation of God's name, equipped for the advancing of God's kingdom, and committed to the doing of God's will, which are the first things in the Lord's Prayer. That's your mission. And you're, you're, you're never going to do this mission part-time. You're never going to do this mission unintentionally. This is going to demand intensity and intentionality from you as a Christian dad. It is going to demand everything in you spiritually to do this. And you say, well, Pastor Sam, how in the world am I going to do this? I mean, I work. I have a job, and it's exhausting. I go to work. I get up early. I get in my car, and I work all day. And I got problems I got to solve at work, and I come home, and, and then there's stuff that I got to do at home. I got to fix this. I got to do that. I got to cut the lawn. I got to do all this stuff. And, and I'm exhausted. And then I got stuff at church. And I got, I got all. I, I, when am I going to do this? And so even if I get a different job and I reduce uh, all the things I'm doing at home, even if I do all of that, I still don't have enough time and energy and, and ability to do this. And that's why Paul says something else. He talks about an instrument, a means that he gives to every dad that will accomplish this. There is a tool that God gives to every dad to accomplish this. Right? Here's, here's our mission. We have a household. We have a wife. We have children. We don't have servants, thankfully, in today's world, but we do have people that are part of our household that we do business with. And our mission as the head of all of that is to, to nurture and train those people up in their respective relationships so that they will know, love, and serve God obediently, fully, joyfully, and intimately. And in order to do that, I'm going to need ability that I don't have and wisdom that I don't have. So that's the means. Where am I going to get this power? Where am I going to get the ability, the capacity to do this? And the answer is, there is a member of the Trinity that is at work in you. And He lives in you, and He is the Holy Spirit of God. And if you go back to chapter 1, Paul says, I want you... To, I'm praying that God will open your eyes so that you will see the immensity of the power that is at work in you. In chapter 3, Paul explains the entirety of the success of his mission to the Gentiles. I mean, think about Paul. He comes into a city, one man, a total stranger, and by the time he leaves, that city has been turned upside down for the gospel. How do you explain that? Paul says, let me tell you how it happens. There is an amazing power that is working in me and through me. And that power comes from the Holy Spirit of God. That power comes from the Holy Spirit of God. I will never have the strength, I will, no matter how much time you give me, I will never be capable of this task. 
no matter how much money I have or how much help I get, I will never be capable of doing what Paul talks about as a Christian dad in my own strength. I am going to have to be filled with the Spirit, which is exactly what Paul said at the beginning of the section in chapter 5, verse 18, right? Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is going to enable every Christian dad to do what Paul tells him to do with relationship to his wife, with relationship to his sons and daughters, and with relationship to everyone that is associated with his house. And apart from the Spirit of God, you and I will never accomplish the task. There's also a wisdom that God gives to every Christian dad. Notice how Paul says this in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the instruction. That's the word for discipline. Or in the, in the training, rather. That's the idea of discipline. And instruction of the Lord. That word instruction in your Bible is the word admonition. And admonition is a very interesting thing. Admonition refers to words that are used to, to, to encourage, to exhort, to correct, to reprove, to train. Whenever you admonish, you are using a set of words to do that. And there is a particular set of words that God has given to every Christian dad. And if that dad will use those words... He will, by the strength the Holy Spirit gives him, be able to raise up his children to know God, to love God, to serve God, to follow God, to worship God, to obey God. So where are those words? They are a very particular set of words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says that the Old Testament was written for our admonition. There's a set of words that make up 39 books of your Bible, and those words are intended for your admonition. That is how God parents you. How does God parent you? He takes the Spirit of God that indwells you, and that Spirit illuminates your mind so that you can see and understand what those words mean. And there's an entire Old Testament that was written for you to do that. And then in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy, rather, verse 3, verse 16, Paul uses the entire scripture. Paul says, All of it was given by inspiration, and it is profitable. And one of the things that it is profitable for is for admonition. So that by the time these words are done in your life, they have instructed you in righteousness, and they have thoroughly equipped you. For every good work. You say, well, Pastor Sam, this is all great. So, talk to me about what this all means. It just means this. As a Christian dad, you have a mission to raise your children for another household. They aren't yours. They've been entrusted to you. You don't own them the way that Ephesians fathers thought they owned their children. You don't. They belong to somebody else. And the head of that household, Christ, has been teaching you how to live. You learned Christ from Christ. And it involves putting off the old way of living and embracing a whole new way of living. The old man behavior and the new man behavior. And that is your mission. Your mission is to raise up your children so that they come to know the Lord and then they come to follow the Lord and then they come to behave in ways that reflect the Lord. That's your mission. You will never do that in your own strength. If you try in your own strength, you will provoke your children to what? To anger. So you need somebody else's strength. You need the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God has given you a unique wisdom. And it's in your Bible. So when you use words... Don't use your words. Use God's words to parent your children. So when they displease you, don't just tell them why it displeased you. Go to God's words and use God's words to show them why this behavior displeases God. Use the words 
that God gave you to correct. When you go to encourage them, use the encouragements that God uses in Scripture to encourage you. This is why we talk about gospel-shaped parenting, which is very different than every other kind of parenting, which, re- which will require of you as a dad that you know the Scriptures. That the Scriptures are a part of your daily life. That you're in the Scriptures. One of the greatest things that uh, one of the greatest habits I, I ever formed in my life, I formed as a college student because I heard somebody say this, and I've been doing it now for years. If you read the proverb of the day every day, how many times a year are you going to read the book of Proverbs? Twelve. And if you read the book of Proverbs like that for ten years, that's a hundred and twenty times that you have been reading and studying and praying the greatest wisdom that God ever gave you because that wisdom is actually given by Solomon to his son so that his son will know how to live righteously, justly, and equitably in the world. Can you imagine what would happen in our families if we just took the book of Proverbs and we used those words to parent our children? But the problem is we don't know the book of Proverbs. We don't read the book of Proverbs. It's not a part of our life. And so if you're a Christian dad, one of the greatest things you can do for your family is to read your Bible every day. To read it regularly and repeatedly and reflectively so that you begin to know what's in that book and you begin to see how God is using that book to parent you. Because you know what happens when you read the book of Proverbs? Here's how you start. Oh, man, that is great for Susie. I'm going to write that down. Oh, and this one right over here, that's what Johnny did last week. I'm going back to him, and I'm piling on this verse on his head. And then all of a sudden, God starts saying, and these eight verses are for you. Write that down. And you're like, oh. Then two verses later, after all of this weight, comes this amazing encouragement in that same proverb. And it's like, oh, God, thank you. And just like God uses His Word to parent you, you as a dad need to use His Word to parent your kids. Now, let me give you one final thing and we're done. The motive is this, to not provoke them to wrath. That's the motive. We do all of this and on a high level, our motive is to raise them for that house, but, but in the immediate moment, our motive is we don't want to provoke them to wrath. And I mentioned a minute ago that sometimes we can provoke our kids to wrath because we make them mad or we make them resentful. But there's another wrath that we can actually provoke our kids to, and it's God's wrath. We can parent our kids in such a way that we get them pointed in directions or living for things that bring God's wrath upon them. Or we tolerate things, or we tolerate behaviors that will bring God's wrath on them. The Scriptures are very clear that God's wrath is falling down from heaven on unbelief. And while there is a sense in in the fact that you and I are not under God's wrath as believers, and we have experienced the mercy of God and the grace of God, there are behaviors that God has identified that bring His wrath upon the world. And so here I am as a Christian dad, and my kid has got great athletic talent. And I am determined that he is going to get a college scholarship because I can't afford to pay for his college. And this talent, I'm going to leverage this talent to get him into X school so that he can get X degree and then he can go out and spend the rest of his life not having to scrape by the way we're having to scrape by. And so all of a sudden, I am pushing this kid. And on Sunday, he's at basketball camp. Instead of going to a mission trip, he's over here. And and all of a sudden, this is all of his attention. And this is all of his energy. And I'm driving this. And I'm making sure none of this gets in the way of that. And every once in a while, I let the door open. Okay, go to camp and get back in here. 
And 25 years later, I wonder why I have unsaved grandkids. 25 years later, I wonder why that marriage didn't make it. 25 years later, I wonder why that kid turned away from the faith. And Paul says, way back here, when you were raising that kid at 9 and 10, you were provoking him to wrath. Man, this kid has a full-ride scholarship to this university, or he could go to this little Christian university over here. You know what? There's no way. This is, this is where the prestige is. This is where the honor is. This is where the wealth is. And one day that kid comes home and says, Hey, Dad, I'm getting engaged next week. Oh, really? Is she a believer? No. She doesn't go to church. Her parents don't go to church. How did that happen? Or, or maybe they came back to you and said, You know, Dad, I, I went to this religion class and... I started reading a lot and I started listening and I started doing my own. You know, I'm an adult now and I know you guys raised us in church and to believe in God and believe in the Bible. But, but, you know, as I've just gotten exposed to things, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that. How did that happen? It happened way back here where you determined that you were going to get them into this place so they could succeed. And they succeeded for all the wrong reasons in the wrong realm. You, you parented them for that realm. And God is saying, you need to parent them for that realm. It isn't about being successful in that realm. It's about having significance in this realm. And when you have significance in this realm, you will make an impact for God in that realm. So raise your children in ways that don't provoke them away from that realm or bring the wrath of God upon them in this life or in the life to come because of what they're giving themselves to in this realm. And that's why you and I need spirit-enlightened wisdom. We need spirit-enlightened submission. We need spirit-energized loving and we need spirit-exemplified living because this task is too big for us. You know, when I finished this message and I looked at it, I just stepped back and, and, and two things went through my mind. Number one, God, I, I have fallen so far short of this. And I don't think there's a dad here, if we really catch what Paul's saying here, that's going, oh yeah, I got this. Right? We're all sitting here going, Wow. And I sat there and I thought to myself, you know, if I'd only known this 20 years ago, I would have done so many things differently. And a message like this can sort of get into a Christian dad and go, woulda, coulda, shoulda. And that's never, never profitable. Paul didn't do that to the Ephesian dads, and he's not doing that to you, and he's not doing that to me, because you don't ever stop being a dad. You don't ever stop being a dad. And some of the greatest moments as a dad that you will have are when your kids are adults. And there's an aha moment because when when they're 13, they wonder, what happened? Did we get the short end of the parent drawstrick? I mean, you know, I got the dumbest two people on the planet as parents. And then when they have kids... There's an amazing reversal. You become an instant genius. Dad, how did you do this? Well, that's for me to, you know, and you to find out. Right? There has to be, you know, no, we don't do that. But, but God never does that to us. It is, this is so far beyond us that all, all, all we can do is come to the Lord and say, God, take what little parenting I've done and put your parenting on top of it. So that what happens in the life of my son or daughter is not limited by my mistakes, but it is enhanced by your wisdom and your power. That's a great prayer for every dad to pray. And the second thing that I did was I thought about my own dad. Never went to Bible college, never pastored, 
taught a little Sunday school class, lived the gospel in front of his four kids. 89 years now, as he comes to the end of his earthly journey, he's living out what the gospel looks like at that stage in life. And all along the way, I've been so thankful for the example of a Christian dad. And you know, some of you in this room have Christian dads. And you should thank God for them. And you should thank them. But some of you here in this room, Father's Day is not an exciting day for you because you didn't have a dad. Your dad was absent from your life. Or maybe your dad was the cause of a lot of pain and a lot of affliction and a lot of hurt in your life. And you wish you had a dad that would do just do this, much less that. And this morning you can do two things. You can pray for your dad. You can ask God to do work in his heart if he's still alive. And then you can thank your real dad, your heavenly dad, for the grace and the mercy that he has extended to you. So on this Father's Day, as we listen to Paul, let's go to our heavenly Father and thank you. Lord, how grateful we are for this wisdom that you have put in this verse. Lord, I had never imagined that this one verse could be so full of truth that that could shape our thinking so bigger and so in, in ways that are so much larger than the way I've been thinking about parenting. So Lord, we come to your truth and we sit under it and we ask that you would Use it to shape us and to encourage us. It is your admonition to us. These are the words that you have given. And so may they be the words that bring life. Peter said, we know that you alone have the words of life. And we've had these words this morning and we ask that they would do the work in us that needs to be done. And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.